We're going to look at this evening at Philippians chapter 2. And I want to read from verse 1, but we're going to look especially at verses 5 to 11. You'll find on page 1179. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I suspect most of us here would call ourselves Christians. We follow Christ. We therefore want to be like Christ, to behave like him and to think like him and to have his attitude. Verse 5, Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude or the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And that is one of the most challenging verses in the whole of Scripture. That you and I are to treat one another with the mind of Christ. Now I think we are given in this passage, <clears throat> which is possibly an early hymn, I think we are given a, a tremendous privilege and insight into what Christ was doing on the cross, what his mind was, what was he thinking about. And we are given this not just to satisfy our curiosity, but to be transformed ourselves. So we're going to look at it in three or four ways, depending on the time. Um, first of all, it's very simple, verse 6, who being in very nature God. It's very simple. Jesus Christ is God. Not just thought, but he really and truly was God. He was truly God before he became a human being. I'm going to refer to a few scriptures as we go through this because some of it, a lot of you, a lot of us will know this at one level, and yet it should continue to uh, amaze us. I like listening to occasional sermons when I'm walking around and uh, you go through phases, you know, Matt Chandler and different people. And I personally always find myself coming back to Tim Keller. And so I've started walking around listening to Tim Keller again. And um, he had, I, I was, when I was walking down to church this morning, this, this great sermon, and where he was talking about 
being in Christ and what it means. And he said, some of you get fed up of hearing this. And he said, if you are getting fed up of hearing this, then I want to say to you that there's something wrong with you because you should never get fed up of hearing what it is to be in Christ. And it's the same in terms of who Jesus is. The, the practical stuff of Christianity comes out of our recognizing and identifying with and following Jesus Christ. And the devil's always trying to take us away from that. So it's always good for us to be reminded. Hebrews 1 says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then these amazing words. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. In the beginning was the word, says John, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Paul says to the Colossians, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It is important for us to realize when we're talking about Jesus coming into this world that he did not begin to exist in, when he was born as a baby, but he truly is the Son of God. John 5.18, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, sometimes we speak about Jesus being God and we speak about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as though it was a given, as though it was quite easy to grasp and to understand. And some of us just use the words and we don't think about it all that much. And I confess that I don't grasp it all, but I think it's wonderful to think about just for a while. That's what I'm trying to do this evening. I love reading Augustine, and uh, I read this. When the question is asked, what three? We say God is three in one. He says, when the question is asked, what three? Human language labors altogether under great poverty of speech. The answer, however, is given, three persons. Not that it might be completely spoken, but that it might not be left wholly unspoken. In other words, we don't have the language to describe this perfectly and in a way that we could all grasp and understand, but we have enough language to be able to explain or to describe what the Bible actually says. What is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, for me, it's amazing. I, I got home today and there was, I haven't seen this for a while, but there was a leaflet from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you know the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they started with an evangelical Bible study where Judge Russell decided that he couldn't explain the Trinity and he didn't like it. So basically he invented his own religion took out the Trinity, took out hell, took out one or two other things. And that's just incredible that uh, anyone would do that because it does take away from the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian teaching of the Trinity. There's one God who exists in three persons. 
The three persons are distinct, yet are one in substance, essence, or nature. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Three persons, one God. And if you say, yeah, I get that, then you're probably asleep. It's quite difficult to grasp it. It's little wonder that the church calls it the mystery of the Trinity. And that is what it is. But the important thing, well, maybe, no, no, let me, let me add something more to that. One of the things that really helped me in grasping the Trinity is why does God need to be Trinity? Donald MacLeod of the Free Church College had just a wonderful wee book on the Trinity. And it was the first time, he always had this way of making you think quite deeply. And I remember him preaching about this as well. And it just fascinated me what he said. He said, God is love. Before God, what was there? Nothing. Was there something there with God? If God is love, who does he have to love when the world was not created, when human beings were not there, when the angels were not created? Well, MacLeod goes on to say this. The answer is that the Trinity shows God to be a fellowship of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was a time when there was no world nor people to love, but there was never a time when the Father was not loving the Son and the Son loving the Father. Far from being a problem, the Trinity is the only truth about God which explains the existence of love. A totally solitary God could have many characteristics, power, wisdom, infinity, but until he creates someone to love, he cannot love. Therefore, for a solitary God, love cannot be of his nature. But the Christian understanding of God as taught to us by God through the scriptures is of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's interesting how often you come across what the Father says of the Son. This is my beloved Son. This is the Son whom I love. So when we talk about the Trinity, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God. We're talking about God Father, God Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in these verses, we're told that Jesus was in very nature God. In other words, he is God. And it's, what, what's fascinating in this hymn is that it's a contrast with Adam. Adam sinned because he was told you'll become like God. Jesus reversed that because although he was God, he became human. He did not exploit or take advantage of something to be used. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We were looking at equality this morning and Jesus gave up that equality that he had within the Trinity to come and to be humbled for our sake, to rescue and to save us. Now we're going to look at what that humiliation involved, but it's the first part it is really important to grasp that Jesus did come from, from, from glory, that he is God, 
and that for him to come and be on this earth in his poverty and in his humiliation is the most astonishing thing. So firstly then, Jesus is the God who became man. And I'm going to intersperse this with with singing about these things. So we're going to sing uh, the song, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus, because what caused him to come to earth and to to die for us was simply this love, the, the love that exists within the Godhead. God so loved that he gave his son, the son loved, the spirit loved, son loved and he came. So let's stand and sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. We're told that he was made in human likeness. Verse 7, he became man, he became anthropos, he's the new Adam. It doesn't mean he was the likeness without the reality. God, what the law was powerless to do, it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. Romans 8 verse 3. Jesus really was human. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He emptied himself. Some say this means he ceased being God, or that he emptied himself of God-like characteristics such as omnipotence. But I go along with those who think that it is, it means something slightly different, that he became of no reputation, as the older translation puts it. The utter self-giving of God in Christ. He gave his glory. He never ceased to be God, but he made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing. He did not take advantage of his position. He sacrificed and was humiliated. And all the older theologians talk of the humiliation of Christ. He poured out himself. He humbled himself. And it's interesting that in this context, Paul is using Christ as an example to encourage Christians to serve and to care for one another. As God, Christ owned everything. As man, he owned nothing. He had no pillow on which to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat. He had to borrow a pulpit. He had to borrow a donkey. And he even had to borrow a tomb. He was a servant, taking the very nature of a servant, doulos, someone who's devoted to, the, to another to the extent of disregarding one's own interest. And what we were looking at this morning and why I wanted to look at this this evening is to say that our attitude is always to be one of Jesus Christ. Our mind is to be one of giving. And again, what's here is just the opposite of the Adam story. Adam in pride seeks to become God. Christ in humility becomes human beings, a human being, so that we as human beings can be restored to fellowship. But then verse 8 goes further. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We might look at the characteristics of Christ and the mind of Christ and look at different things that we most admire. But I think the most astonishing is 
expressed in Hebrews 5, verse 7, page 1204. Hebrews 5, 7. During the day of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Isn't that interesting, by the way, how Jesus prayed? He offered up prayers with loud cries and tears because he really felt it. To the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He lived a life of utter obedience to God. We say, well, Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. Yes, but his perfidy. If he was sacrificed when he was a baby, that wouldn't have been the perfect sacrifice because he had to live a life of perfect obedience to God first of all. And that is what he did. And he prayed. We know that he prayed at least once in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me, but not what I want, what you want. And again in that, he's not just being set as an example, but he's being shown as the one who obeyed for us so that we are free again to serve and to give. We don't give because we're going to get something. We give because we've got Christ. And this is what Christ actually did. His death, of course, of unimaginable pain and shame. Deuteronomy 21, 23, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. To know how horrible this was to people. If, if you were reading this, <coughs> we're reading it in a kind of Christian stroke, post-Christian context. If you were reading this in Roman times, it would have been horrific to you. Cicero said this, Far be the very name of the cross, not only from the body but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. Crucifixion was a curse for the Jews, and it was a curse <coughs> for the Romans. And Jesus was cursed for us. In our culture and in our society, there are many people for whom that still remains the case. The notion of the God who died is either ludicrous or horrendous. Our, um, there are plenty of people in our culture who are secularists or atheists who are just appalled, even within the church, appalled at the notion that God would punish sin in Jesus. They would say that what I told the children this morning about Christ shedding his blood for us, that that's like abuse. Or you may get the Muslim mindset. John Updike in his novel, The Terrorist, says this, to worship a God known to have died, the very idea affects Ahmed like an elusive stench, a stoppage in the plumbing, a dead rodent in the walls. To worship a God known to have died is so horrendous 
and so evil and, and so twisted in the minds of uh, Islam and in the minds of many people in, for different ways. And yet this is what we are told. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I love what Calvin says about this. For this reason, it was imperative that he who was to become our redeemer be true God and true man. It was his task to swallow up death. Who but the life could do this? It was his task to conquer sin. Who but very righteousness could do this? It was his task to, ri- to rout the powers of world and air. Who but a power higher than world and air could do this? Now where does life or righteousness or lordship and authority of heaven lie but with God alone? Therefore our most merciful God, when he willed that we be redeemed, made himself our redeemer in the person of his only begotten son. Milito of Sardis in the year AD 160 said this, he that hung up the earth in space was himself hanged up. He that fixed the heavens was fixed with nails. He that bore up the earth was born upon a tree. The Lord of all was subject to ignominy in a naked body. God put to death the king of Israel, slain with Israel's own right hand. Paul, in dealing with a quarrel in the Philippian church, in trying to sort that out, what does he point them to? He points them to Jesus and to the attitude and to the mindset of Jesus. And I personally think he gets so carried away that he goes into some of the most deepest and most profound practical theology you could ever come across, the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the atonement. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ became man. And Jesus Christ, as the God-man, died, and he died for us. One more thing to say about it, but we're going to sing again before um, I do that. We're going to sing the song... um, here is love, and again, it's, it's all tied in. You see, people look at this and they say, well, no, this is a horrible thing. We're saying, no, actually, this is the love of God demonstrating and showing itself. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. So, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, determined not only to create human beings, but knowing that they were going to fall, determine a plan of redemption, a covenant of redemption, by which the the Father sends the Son, the Son agrees to go, the Spirit empowers, and Jesus comes, and this horrendous thing occurs, which is horrendous and yet astonishingly beautiful and beautiful. The hymn writer gets that absolutely perfectly. But what's the purpose of it? Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is to be worshipped because of what he did. The cross is the most wonderful thing. He emptied himself. He was obedient. He was not like one of the Old Testament sacrificial animals who went unknowingly and unwillingly. 
He knew what he was doing. He had a mind. Gordon Fee describes it in this way. Paul believed that in Jesus Christ, the true nature of the living God had been revealed ultimately and finally. God is not a grasping, self-centered being, but is most truly known through the one who, himself in the form of God and thus equal with God, poured out himself in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place, the role of a slave, whose love for his human creatures found its consummate expression in his death on a cross. Sometimes I come across people who say, worship God. What kind of God wants us to worship him? What kind of self-centered being is that? Usually said by human beings who are the most self-centered beings in the universe. God's not self-centered. God did this because of love. And because of that, Jesus is given the name that is above every name. Now, the name in the Bible is so important. The name, Yahweh, Jehovah. The name reflects who the person is and the power and worth and dignity of the person. Given the name of Jesus. Sometimes people talk about baptism as christening. And that's not entirely wrong because as long as you don't understand it to be understood as being made a Christian, but it's rather given, originally it was given the name of Christ. Jesus is not any less than God. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a world that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. Isaiah 45, 23. Paul is saying this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's saying again, Jesus Christ is God. I cannot understand or grasp how people who are intelligent people who would call themselves theologians would say, well, we're not sure that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God. It's shot through in every book. And here again, quoting Isaiah about before me, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Ephesians 1 or Revelation 5.13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We will not in heaven be praising ourselves. We will be praising Jesus Christ because the wonder of what he has done will be so evident to us, it will overwhelm us. You see, that's why to become a Christian is not to become a religious person or to join a church. To become a Christian is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. See, the Christian is somebody who recognizes who Jesus is, what he has done, and why we need him, and we bow before him and we say, Lord, take my sin, take my life. You are worthy to be served. You don't need me, but I need you. And in your grace and your mercy, you came to me. Sometimes people present the gospel in a way which goes, kind of goes like this. Well, Christianity is really good and it's a good thing to be and, and come along to church and so on. I recently 
listened to a program which depressed me so much because it was Christians talking about a particular lifestyle which I'll not go into and they were saying how they'd gone along to church and they liked being in the church and they felt accepted in the church and then they kind of announced their lifestyle and some people accepted it and others didn't and it was all about them and all about their lifestyle. You know, I didn't hear once in that program any acknowledgement or acceptance of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And I think their basic problem was they weren't converted. They didn't know who Jesus was. They liked the church. They liked the buzz. They liked the worship. They liked the feel that they got from it. But they never actually bowed the knee to Jesus and called him Lord and said, Lord, I'll live the way that you want me to live. And sometimes we present the gospel in such a way as though it's like just joining a club or, or a religion or um, something moral. I listened to the service this morning and it fascinated me that the speaker is one of the most liberal ministers in Scotland. He used all Puritan hymns, like rock solid hymns, read from the AV. And what was his sermon? It was just classic moralism. Be good. There was nothing of Christ and nothing of Christ's atonement. And sometimes I think even as evangelical Christians, we, we present things to people. Do you know what the message, I was talking this morning about Charleston, I'm talking about around here, I'm talking about wherever you live. The message that we have is not come along to church and things will be okay for you or it'll be better for you. It's not even that we would like to help you through cap is a wonderful thing. All the stuff that happens. But the heart of our message absolutely all the time is just simply this. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord and you are going to bow the knee to him at some point. It's not you can take it or leave it because you can't. It's you either bow the knee to him now or there'll come this point mentioned here every tongue at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All will submit. All will confess. But not all will be saved. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to confess and to be saved. You don't want to get to the point where you will bow before Jesus and call on the rocks to fall on you. And I think that we have to have an understanding and an urgency in that. When I meet people who despise God and who laugh at God and who mock God and who mock Jesus, my, I don't have this instinct now that says, well, well, that's really horrible because you're being really horrible. My, my instinct now is, you foolish, foolish people, one day you are going to bow before Jesus. You're not going to stand on the day of judgment and shake your fist at God. You're not going to question God on the day of judgment. You're not going to judge God on the day of judgment. The day of judgment is the day of your judgment. And you will bow and you will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. So we've basically got an option. We do it now. When we bow before him in love, we bow before him receiving his mercy or we will do it on the day of judgment. It's interesting. 
that this is not setting the Father against the Son as well. Look what he says. It's to the glory of God the Father. Every time we'll acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of Jesus is not independent of the Father. It is a trinity. And again, I think that's an interesting model in terms of what's being said here in the church because all these statements are reminding us about the need to put aside disunity, discord, and personal ambition. If I can put it this way, if Jesus Christ did not have personal ambition, how can you let your personal ambition get in the way of his work in the church? If Jesus Christ did not, if you like, compete with the Father, but brought glory to the Father by obeying the Father, then how can we be so petty in so many ways that we are? The ascension and the exaltation of Christ means that he is Lord, and that's why we serve him. We do so humbly. Whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Paul saying to Yodi and Syntyche, the two women who were disagreeing with one another and were probably the cause of this letter, he's saying to them, you need to climb down off your high horses. You need to climb down. Oh, she said this and she said this. You need to climb down off your rights. You need to look at the one who was equal with God but gave up his glory so that he could save you so that God could be even more glorified. Humble yourself, says Peter, therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now, how do I apply? How do, we, how do we apply all of this? I think it's, in one sense, it's very difficult, and in another sense, it's very, very easy. You and I are not going to understand everything about the Trinity or the atonement or the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. We will, you will hear that preached in this church over and over again from many, many different angles. And in the words of the song, may you never lose the wonder of the cross. But one of the reasons it's preached, first of all, for those of you who are not yet believers, it's that you may be saved. It's that you may bow the knee to Jesus tonight so you won't, you'll bow to him as your savior so that you won't bow to him or have to bow to him as your judge on the day of judgment. But another reason is this, for those of us who are believers, yes, to encourage us, but also to provoke us and to stimulate us and to challenge us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. I do it and you do it. We jockey for position. We, we get hurt because of our pride and our circumstances. And I just want simply to say that when that's happening, we need to look at Christ. McShane's great dictum, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Jesus Christ. And sometimes you've been asked to do something or sometimes in your life something has happened which is humiliating and degrading. I'll tell you this, it will never come anywhere near 
the humiliation and the degradation that Christ coming down from glory and suffering on the cross had to endure. And Paul says, you've got to have that mind. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. I look at this and I say, Lord, you're joking. My mind is a cesspit so many ways. My heart's all over the place. My emotions get so confused. And God says, let this mind be in you. Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. That's what growing in grace is. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's why we repent every day. That's why we bow now and we say, Lord, I bow before you as Lord and I acknowledge my sin and my weakness. But you died for that and you raise us up. Always please come back to the cross. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. Give us the mind of Christ. Lord, the the gospel is such good news that the more we understand it, in one way, the harder it is to believe. Could the Son of God have loved me and given himself for me? It's true, and it's a truth that is wonderful and deep. As we go into this new week, with all the ups and downs that we will face, with all the joys and pains, with all the worries and concerns, with all the pride and vanity and sin that is within us, help us to look at you and help us to see that you gave and you gave and you gave again. And help us, O Lord, having confidence in that, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Help us to be those who give and give and give again. Enable us to serve one another in love. Enable us to show your love to the people we meet. Draw near to us. Forgive us and use us for your glory. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.